Um, as we look at the book of Philippians here, if you've been paying no attention or if you didn't pay attention to the last five minutes, as Daniela read it, we're on Philippians 3. And um, spoiler, right off the bat, I can summarize everything I'm going to say in verse 3. Paul already summarizes it in verse 3. Uh, so Philippians 3, verse 3. If you're taking notes, um, you just really need to take down this verse. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And pretty much we can just mic drop and watch, walk off there. But Paul has summarized his whole argument in this. So I'm going to tear apart this verse and then we'll tear apart more of it after that. But Paul's already said here, we are not just him and the guys that he's writing to, but us as an extension of, of New Testament church. Uh, we are the circumcision and not that we are those Jewish people, but actually, as Romans 2, 27, 29 tells us, we're a set-apart people. And so Paul in this chapter, one of the things he does is tells us to be a set-apart people. This is what he stresses in Philippians, to be set-apart, and um, marked as a different people. Um, second thing, who worship by the Spirit of God. And this is a huge leap from, if you know your Old Testament, from Old Testament worship, which is for one person for a limited time in a limited place with limited access to God's presence, we now have unrivaled comparative uh, access to God's presence. We have the omniscient presence of God and actually me and my sin and my shame in a moment can turn to God and he can grant me access into his presence so we can worship by the Spirit of God. We can draw close even as we've just worshipped now, even as you've worshipped in your actions throughout the estate today, hopefully, uh, that actually you have been able to draw close to God by the Spirit of God. He's made that possible. Um, and we glory in Jesus Christ. Hopefully that's the truth of your life, that actually we're people who get lost in the wonder and the awestruck glory of who Jesus is. That's what fuels our lives. And that we put no confidence in the flesh. Um, and so that's quite heavy. That's quite heavy for a Thursday night. Um, and really, if we could summarize, that's, that's the chapter summarized really in that verse. But like we've had a hard day, we've had GCSE results that have either been good or bad. You've had a, a slog at a barbecue or a, a football sports night. You've sweated. These boys were saying about you know it's been the running theme of the week. You know, good manners. You, you smell good. Good manners. Well, I that up. It's good manners to smell good. Yes. And I was displaying bad manners, a really bad manners. Like Daniela lent me a bit of bow spray there before we got up here. It was it was rough. It was bad manners. It was really bad manners. Um, but we sorted that out. But how do we pack this? How do we unpack this more? Well, Paul proceeds to hash through it in the rest of this chapter. And if you think it's hard to do, Paul actually outlines that this is harder even for himself. That if we think this is a difficult task to not just like be set apart, worship by the Spirit of God, glory in Christ alone, and like not revel in anything we've done, Paul actually it's much harder for himself. Verse four. If you take a look at it, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. <clears throat> if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He's, he's telling you, like, if you think it's tough, it's tougher for me. Actually, if anyone else has the right to stand upon what they've done, their actions, their background, their pedigree, it's me. Paul has went through and has said, I was not just born in the right place, not just in the right family, not just the right training, not the right career. I have executed it perfectly and likewise you could say you know I was I was dedicated I was baptized I was confirmed I was brought up in the right church I went to Sunday school I went to Bible class I went to 
everything. GB, BB, I went to the whole lot. I have the right upbringing. I go to CE, SU, whatever. I go to Take Back, I go to whatever. You go to your youth group, you've, you've grown up, you've fought the faith well, and you're thinking, I've got the right background. Or maybe my whole family was born, or I was born on the right side of town, or my family is in the orange, or my family has always had this as a traditional thing in our family that we have always been in this church. And actually, regardless of your pedigree, regardless of your background, regardless of what affiliations you have, these things count for nothing. If anyone had the right to claim it, it was Paul. He had the boxes ticked. In fact, I don't think anyone can tick this box. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, so it's probably none of us, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Like, not even Reverend Bunn can claim to be blameless. I mean... Our, our right honourable John Graham cannot claim to be blameless. Even I myself, I know, shock, horror, cannot claim to be blameless. Yet Paul, it's the word of God, he can stand on this and say, I am blameless. Like, I didn't step out of it one second. Yet, Paul says, whatever I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He counts all of his background all of his pedigree, all of his upbringing, anything that could puff him up, any title, any responsibility. You think that because you are a kids club leader for however many years, because you lead worship or do whatever in your church. No, it's all set aside. It actually counts for nothing. And Paul, if anyone had the career to prop him up, lays it aside. And in fact, it even hit me when I was looking at this again. In verse 7, but whatever I had gained, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So whatever he had gained, whatever extra thing he had got on normal life, he counted as loss. Then it continues, verse 8, indeed I count everything as loss. Paul here finds himself in the middle of a jail cell. Not only has his pedigree, upbringing, career, everything else been robbed off him, he then had managed to get his way into the church and elevated to a level of prestige. He had actually done a really good job. This wasn't even against the church now. But this too was robbed from him. His fellowship was robbed from him. Things that were good, access to scripture was robbed from him. He is now bound in a jail cell. His freedom has been robbed from him. And soon he's expecting his life to be robbed from him. Verse 8, indeed I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of not just the previous things, but all things, even his freedom. And I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Paul hasn't just lost some things, he's lost everything. And he finds himself in this place. Yet Paul's attitude is not quite what my attitude would be in the same scenario. Verse ten, or sorry, verse nine, and be found in him not having righteousness of my own that comes from my from the law, but that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Verse ten, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and that I may share in his sufferings and become like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Thankfully it's a very certain thing by verse nine, but Paul is saying that I may know him, that I may share in his sufferings that I may attain the resurrection. He's saying, even if I have a chance at attaining Christ, a chance at attaining resurrection with him, then it's so worth to put all these things aside, even for the chance 
to be drawn close. Yet verse 9, we have a very solid truth. We're very thankful it doesn't depend on our works, but it's totally on his righteousness. But he has this burning desire within him. And it's a real challenge to us. Do I have that same desire, even as we outlined at the start, that we revel in the glory of Christ? That that's what fuels us, that that's what drives us? Paul is brimming with joy for even the chance. A few people here know my granny. Um, my granny is your, your typical granny. Like, you know the granny you see with like an apron and like she bakes and she's jolly? Like, that's my granny. And my granny is, is that to a T. Um, grew up Church of Ireland, Nocton Muckley. Um, but she's like very, very like your typical granny with glasses, daughters about. Like, um, she's like starting to dote on a bit, but she's still very lovely. I mean, she's just what you expect from a granny. And she's always been like that. And ever since she retired, she's just loved to bake. Very talented at it. Loves it. And I remember growing up at Sunday, you go around to Sunday, Granny's on Sunday, whole spread of stuff, like a disgustingly obscene amount of stuff. So you have like savoury stuff, like so someone will find a pizza and there'll be a few sausage rolls. But then Granny's expertise is the desserts. And I'm talking like there's a dozen people there and she'll have like 15 desserts. Like you cannot possibly eat it all. And you just have like a wee slice and a wee slice and a wee slice. But growing up, I happened at one point to say, those are really nice caramel squares. Like, I'm seven or eight. And I thought, hmm, that's a nice caramel square. Just happened to throw out the comment. Granny, somewhere in her, like, mind, lodged this. Caramel squares. So every time she saw me, or every time I knew it was coming, made a set of caramel squares. And I'm not just talking, like, one caramel square. You don't make one caramel square. You make, like, 50 in a batch. And so you... No, granny goes all out. <laughs> and so you had one or two on a Sunday, and this was the dream, because these were nice caramel squares. And then there's some left over, and you take them home during the week. And this is class, week one. It's still nice, week two. You see, by like year four slash five, <laughs> I, I started to get like the shake when I saw caramel squares. Like, she was doing something to me. Like, I don't know what was going on. Like, it was probably early diabetes. I don't know. But... <laughs> These caramel squares are being peddled onto me, and out of shame and guilt, and like I couldn't say no, I just compulsively ate them every Sunday. Until there's one time I came in on a Sunday, and I honestly could not face them anymore. Like it was, it's a breaking point. Like I'm about to snap. Like I'm about to become an older person, and I'm just sitting stirring out this caramel square that's in my plate. I just can't do it. I cannot do it. And Granny, bless her. Part of me is reluctant by the fact that this is probably recorded and she'll end up hearing this. She asked me, do you not like them anymore? <sighs> my heart sank. Like, this is my granny who, like, her wee fingers, like, she's, they're, like, mashing, like, digestive biscuits, like, putting literal blood, sweat, and tears, like, probably developing worse arthritis. Like, I've, I've caused this. And there she is, like, putting her life into this. And then I decided to not eat it. And like the shame, the shame that wells on me. And then she goes like, have you never liked them? Like, no. (laughs) But it's the shame that came with it. But my heart like sunk. I was gutted like beyond belief. And like, please don't hear me as being like really ungrateful. Like I loved them. They were nice. There were just too many of them. But it got to a point where I had lost my flavor for it. I had enjoyed them for so long. And then the desire had gone. 
and it was just routine. It was necessity that drove it on. And I think our faith can land there sometimes where I lose my passion and I'm not characterized by verse 3 anymore. My faith isn't fueled by a desire to revel in the glory of Jesus Christ. It's actually just become that it looks more like obligation. It looks more like routine or necessity or maybe even guilt. The guilt of a parent who expects me to continue on or a grandparent. And we're just obliged to continue on. We feel this guilt of pursuing faith that isn't even faith. Let's look back at Paul, verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I don't know about you, but phrases like surpassing worth of Christ, counting the loss of all things, to me, it doesn't really sound like it's a hassle or a drag or a drudgery for Paul to follow Jesus. It sounds like it's almost surpassing worth that nothing else compares, that this hasn't become obligation or routine or mundane, that this hasn't stealed, that this hasn't become living off his own pride or his position or his title or expectation of others. This is fueled by a desire to revel in the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's keep going. Verses 12 to 14. Not that I have already obtained this, nor that I am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it on my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining to what lies ahead, I press forward to the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul outlines this idea of a race, pressing on to win the prize, like a long-distance runner. Um, I don't know if you noticed, there's a ginger boy was sitting here, um, I was sitting with Elvi. Um, ginger thin fella, looks like a long-distance runner, that's because he is. And we were at a camp um, a couple of weeks back called Relentless. And, yeah, it was a good camp. Uh, and some of the lads, they have free time in the morning, they can do what they want. We have a meeting at 10 o'clock. And this fella's over 18, so anyone who's going to pursue child protection issues, I'll stop you right there. He's 18, he had his own consent. Um, he said, could he go for a run in the morning? I said, no problem, as long as you only go to Malile. So we're in Gano Activity Centre, Malile. It's about two miles, two miles back, at most. That's no problem. Dara sets off at about 6 a.m. I sleep on, because I'm not up at 6 a.m. We late night. Around 8 a.m., I get a phone call from a very, very winded Dara going, going to be a little bit later, not going to make the prayer meeting. We have a prayer meeting that's poured it down. So like, this is a camp with like 450, 500 young people. Pour it down. We get together, about 50 or 60 of us. We have we 50 of us. We get a wee time together, pray together. Not going to make it. That's all right. No problem. Get a phone call again at about half nine. Going, I'm in a bad way here. Probably not going to be in time for the main meeting at 10 o'clock. I was like, we're not running to Malile. This is, like, you could have walked it in this time. This is approaching the four-hour mark. And he's went, well, I passed Port of Vogue. 
And then I saw a sign for Ballywalder. I was like, well, that's, that's near where we are. And he's like, no, I think I'm near Donagadee. Turns out, Dara had ran a marathon. <laughs> so, shortly after 10 o'clock, I, get a, I have a text, actually, from him. And um, he described where he was. He had the Free Presbyterian in Donagadee. He says, I'm the guy in a small, blue t-shirt, or small guy in a blue t-shirt, punctured, lined up against the wall. Dara had run, managed to run 26.9 miles, more than a marathon. But he actually had stopped five miles away from where the camp was. So I had to go get the minibus and trek away out and find him in Donagadee, slumped by the roadside, like <laughs> semi-conscious, because he was so dehydrated. But Dara had decided to set on for a race. He'd intended to run two miles. He prepared to run two miles. He felt the, felt the reserve in him. He thought, you know what, I'll run a bit more and decided to do this weird dog leg of Malile, no, Ganaway, Portavogie, Ballywalter, Donagadee, and then he just collapsed there and he couldn't make it to the finish line. He aimed for a prize and he missed it. The goal he had set was off the mark and he hadn't actually ran the race to completion. And Paul here tells us, verse 14, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upper call in Jesus Christ. Let those of you who are mature think of it this way. It's a bit of an immature decision to run a marathon. Um, and if any of you think otherwise, let God reveal you also. Only let us hold true to what we've attained. He had set a goal, but he hadn't prepared for the race that he set out to do. He was underprepared for what he'd attempted to do. His life wasn't in order for what he attempted to do. And some of us maybe this week have set out under the steam of obligation, routine, routine, necessity. My friends signed up. My parents expect me to sign up. My older brother or sister signed up. Or you find yourself in your general Christian walk and you've set out on a race that you're not prepared to run to completion. And you find yourself, metaphorically, in Donagadee, five miles from the finish line. And you can't go any further. And it's because you've missed the goal, you've missed the mark, and you've actually set your value not in the surpassing glory of Jesus Christ, but maybe in your position, maybe in your power, maybe in your obligation or necessity or role that you've had to do, you've actually missed the mark. And so what happens? Verse 17, Brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to my example. For many of whom I have often told you, now I tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, and their minds are set on earthly things. These are people who initially set out for the cause of Christ. It's even been highlighted earlier. But actually, with a slight misalign of the distance that they need to run, with not the right reserves to drive them on, with not the right goal in sight, they've actually ended up not just not finishing, but working out to be enemies of the cross. Paul even says it with tears. The fact that they were meant to be on track, they were meant to assist us in this race, but actually they've turned out to be the ones who slow us down. In fact, they are enemies of it. Their God is their belly and their glory is their shame, with their minds set on earthly things. This seems like quite a harsh warning, but it it actually is. We have to lift our gaze off the earthly things. As we constantly reminded, Paul's continuously stressed at the Philippines, and actually to set it on glorying in Jesus Christ. So then, what are we? Well, we're different, and our motivation is different. 
and our hope is different and our reason is different. Let's look at verse 20. But our citizenship, it's in heaven. And we await a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things even to himself. This is our goal. This is what we strive for. It's not to glory in their God is their belly. It's this idea just to lust and desire for more and want. And then the glory in their shame, their mindset, earthy things. But actually, we're to lift our gaze above that. Our citizenship is in heaven and we await a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. So coming back to verse 3, really, which just summarizes it all. For we are the circumcision, a set-apart people, a people who are set apart with a calling and a purpose, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So if you're to take anything away, take verse 3 there. Glory in Jesus Christ, set him as the goal and then put no confidence in the flesh. I'll pray with you and then the battle will come up. Lord, we thank you that you are all-sufficient. Even when we take our sight off it, God, even when we don't realize at times, even when we have mal motives, God, would you forgive us of the times that we have gloried in our own pride and our own position and our own authority? Or God, when the times we have ruled on with the mundane, um, out of obligation, out of guilt, Jesus, would you realign our sight? God, would you realign our perspective? So we would set out to glory in Jesus Christ, to revel in your glory, to sit awestruck in wonder of you. And God, we would take no confidence in the flesh. And Jesus, we would run the race well, endeavouring to encounter you and to live for you. In your name we